we now turn to Miss Eby, who presented a 55-year-old woman with locally advanced disease. This woman presented with a cough, and actually this woman has a history of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma hmm. that was treated with transplant, I think, 10 years wow. prior to this. So she was cured of yes, lymphoma. Yes, wow. yes. She was following up with our lymphoma doc just once a year. And, she uh, a smoker? She was a smoker. She's 55. Her transplant was in her mid-40s, and hmm. that was the time she quit smoking. Wow. What was her life situation? Does she have a family? She does. Her husband was very, very involved. And part of me now that I think about it thinks that he was so involved because he went through a transplant with her, which you have to be super involved with. So it was sort of like they just knew the whole process going through it. She had children, but I never met them. They lived out of state. So she comes in with a cough and what... She came with a pretty bad cough. Now, she was being seen by one of our lymphoma docs, one of our transplant docs, and they jumped on it fairly quickly. She was had a cough, history of smoking. They had done a chest X-ray at one of her routine follow-up visits, and I think at that point she was only following up once a year in our cancer center. So she had gotten a chest X-ray, and things just sort of spiraled from there. She had CAT scan, PET scan, showing just locally advanced disease. She has M3 disease, so she has contralateral mediastinal lymphadenopathy. So these patients are generally going to get some kind of chemo and radiation therapy. Is that what she got? Combined chemo radiation, yes. And with her, she was in good shape. Despite the fact that she had had prior chemotherapy before, we decided that she was in very good shape and we wanted to give her what we thought would be the best treatment. We used etoposide and cisplatin, which the etoposide is dosed five days in a row. Cisplatin is given on day one and day eight, and then you repeat that twice. The radiation is about seven weeks worth, so that overlaps the first cycle we give with the start of the radiation. The second cycle, they get, it's a 28-day cycle, so they end up having about two more weeks of radiation left at the second cycle. This is a really, really tough regimen. She had quite a bit of esophagitis, weight loss, pain with the esophagitis, Blood counts dropped, actually, now that I think about it, quite a bit. We did dose-reduce her second cycle of etoposide, which is given 50 milligrams per meter squared daily. The etoposide, we ended up just taking out one of the days, so it was technically a 20% dose reduction. Was she able to maintain her hydration and nutrition? She was. At the end, we had to bring her in for hydration about three times a week, which is This regimen, since they're here every day for radiation, it's sort of not that big of a deal because they're there every day, so you can just hydrate them pretty aggressively. She did pretty well up until about the last two weeks where we had to do more aggressive hydration with her. But food was an issue. I would say by the middle of the regimen, she was having a difficult time getting anything solid down, really relying on things like Ensure, Boost. Do you put G-tubes in these people? Rarely. As a matter of fact, I'm trying to think in my six years of doing this. I don't, I've maybe done it once. So where is she right now? Is she through it? She's through. She's done great. She went on a trip about six weeks after she finished treatment. She's gained weight back. She's swallowing. How much weight did she lose? She probably lost 20 pounds. Wow. It's mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. How large a well, woman is she? Yeah, she probably started out about 180. Oh, okay. So she went down to about 160, mm-hmm. but she actually is doing very well now. We've had a post-op scan that shows improvement. We're always going to see something there. So, Again, did you and her get into numbers? I believe that we probably did talk a lot of numbers with her because she was a very down-to-earth person. She was almost sarcastic, joking a lot. 
and she knew the severity of the situation. And she used to joke a lot that, well, I survived this transplant, so I'm going to really fight this, even though I know my odds aren't very good. And she had sort of like a very sarcastic sense of humor. I mean, what is the long-term survival of patients with this stage disease? So this regimen that we give actually is probably what we consider our best numbers. We would get somewhere between a 25% to 28% cure rate out of this regimen or five-year survival rate. Not every patient, though, is able to tolerate this strong of a regimen. So those are the kinds of numbers that we'll usually quote people. I guess people looking at different chemo regimens in this situation for a while, didn't nothing really seemed to pan out too much. But the thing that I've heard about people talking about recently is now they're starting some trials looking at cetuximab with radiation therapy because, of course, in head and neck cancer, that combination really looked good, and now it's part of therapy. What about your 55-year-old man? Can you talk about him? So this is a never smoker, and I actually just saw him yesterday. He presents with brain metastases. He had a seizure, headaches, went to an ER, was found to have brain mets, never would have known he had anything going on in his chest cavity. He gets gamma knife for the brain mets, so we didn't do any invasive procedure for diagnosis at that time. So before he got the gamma knife, we were deciding how are we going to get tissue diagnosis on this gentleman. So did he have a lesion in his lung? He did. He had a lesion in his lung and he had a large pleural effusion. So any pulmonologist is usually going to say, well, the easiest thing to do here is just tap your effusion and get cells off of that. Then we don't have to do invasive procedures. So the pulmonologist was very good about calling us and saying, you know, oh, you have a, you know, never smoking gentleman here. It would be really nice to try and get EGFR mutation status. But the problem then becomes is that you need a good sample of tissue in order to form a block in order to test for mutation. So this case, we worked very, very well with pathology, pulmonology, and us. They were able to get 800 cc's of pleural fluid. They were able to formulate six blocks of tissue from that, which is pretty rare from a cytology sample. And they were able to determine his mutation status. Now, unfortunately, that all took a process of like three to four weeks. So by the time he had gotten that procedure done, then his gamma knife, he was ready to start treatment, and we didn't want to wait to see the mutation status at the time. So we started this gentleman on pemetrexin carboplatin. He will likely be a candidate for bevacizumab, but not since he had just had the gamma knife procedure. So we are routinely using it now in patients with treated brain mets, being that they are no longer symptomatic from their brain mets, and they've had either radiation or their gamma knife procedure at least four weeks out. So four weeks out, treated, not on steroids anymore, not symptomatic anymore. So this gentleman has a little bit of ways to go from that. However, he got one cycle of pemetrexid and carboplatin, and he came back yesterday for cycle two, and yesterday was the day we got the results of his mutation test that it was positive for an exon 19 mutation. You're right. This case really gets into a lot of interesting things. Mm -hmm. And then maybe we can get into what you're thinking about doing with him. But what you just described here, I mean, imagine four years ago, you wouldn't have said any of this. Mm -mm. This is like all new stuff. Okay, so let's talk about it piece by piece. So the first thing is he's a never smoker. Correct. And I guess we're starting to get this perception that never smoking lung cancer in some ways may be different than the rest of lung cancer. 
Any rough estimate in your own practice, what fraction of patients are either never, they also talk about oligo, you know, maybe 20 cigarettes or whatever, 50 cigarettes. What fraction of your patients are like that? So I actually have exact numbers because I keep a database of this stuff. So the doctor I work with and I, we looked this up about six months ago, and we have a 16%. So funny, I was going to say 15%. 16% of our patients are less than 10-pack year smokers. Hmm. So either never smokers or less than 10-pack years. And that's probably higher than what the national average is that's out there. So within lung cancer, there's this other group of patients. And I guess the other thing that people are focused more on is the EGFR mutation status. And that maybe if the patient with lung cancer who doesn't smoke doesn't have a mutation, maybe they're more like other kinds of patients. But can you go through your perception and how you explain to patients what these mutations are? So we'll tell patients up front, the never smokers, we will currently test everyone right now. And again, this whole idea of getting tissue to test is a huge deal going on for us right now. But we, you can't get it like with a needle biopsy. Right. With small amounts of tissue. Now, we have a molecular pathology fellow who's very interested in this and is working very hard to make sure that each patient now that's getting biopsy, there's going to be sufficient material and do our best that we can so although, that we can analyze these. Although if it's a patient who's had surgery, like your first patient, then well, that's it shouldn't easy. be a problem. Yeah. Surgical specimens are slam dunks. You're always going to have enough. Although it's our perception that even in surgical cases in the community, people aren't necessarily sending mutation tests off. Actually, even at my institution, we're not sending every single surgical specimen off. We're really waiting until the patient sees the oncologist, because all those patients should see an oncologist. Even the stage 1As should have some sort of discussion with an oncologist. So the surgeons and us at this point have decided we'll make that determination of who we're going to send off for mutation testing. How do you explain to patients what the significance of this is and actually what it is? Right. So what we've been explaining to patients is there's two facets to it. There is the fact that it is a prognostic indicator as well as an indicator of how you might respond to certain therapies. And that's why we tell them of the importance of it. We will tell patients that it's pretty rare. I mean, it's more common, obviously, in a never smoker, though we've had some smokers that have had mutations, people that we would have not thought. But we tell patients that it's something that really can guide your therapy, more so than any other indicator that we currently have in lung cancer. So that's where it's so important for us to try and figure this out if we can. You know, I've seen things change, like just in the last year, in the perception of what to do with these patients who have these mutations. Because I guess there was a study that came out, the IPASS study, that compared chemo to, in this case, it what was actually gefitinib, we don't even have that available in the United States anymore, I guess very similar to erlotinib. And the patients who had the mutations actually did better with gefitinib. And now I think people are starting to think, well, maybe a patient like this that you just described, instead of getting chemo with bevacizumab, maybe you ought to get erlotinib. So this patient is kind of coming in when all these things are sort of changing and then how people think. So, and then you find out after one course of chemo that, in fact, there's a mutation there. So what are you thinking at this point? So thinking multiple different things. What it all comes down to is the fact that he does have adenocarcinoma. So that is something that we're looking to give pemetrexid because we know there's a better response right there. So what we're going to do right now is give him a second cycle of chemo because we don't want to give up on, number one, something that can be a winner for him. And number two, we don't want to necessarily add something in before we know what's working and what might not be working. So we're going to treat him with another cycle of pemetrexid and carboplatin, get a scan, 
and then evaluate from there. Is he having great response to this? What is our role to add in the other therapies? Now, I can tell you, when we talked about this with him yesterday, he said, give me all of it. I want all of it right now. Which is a consideration. It is absolutely a consideration. I mean, you could add in the erlotinib, he probably would be fine. Toxicity, what do you think? Well, it all depends. I mean, they're certainly, I think, going to get a worse rash with the mutation. I think there's a correlation there that a lot of times people who have mutations get a worse rash. Really? I think so, yeah. That's interesting. Wow, that's interesting. So, but it's not going to But not that it's going to make him sicker from the chemotherapy from that standpoint. It's not going to lower his blood counts. Right. It's not going to lower his blood counts, things like that. Just different toxicity added on. So, that is something we just want to make sure we get a scan first to see where he's at with the chemotherapy. Sure, so you know what's happening. Right, right. But absolutely is something that we would consider adding in third cycle. And then it sort of leaves you out there with the role of bevacizumab for this patient because he technically would also be eligible for that if he recovers well from his brain metastases, which it seems that he is. And that's another point from a teaching perspective. Again, I think really has changed just in the last year, which is I guess initially the thinking was if somebody had brain mets, they're not going to get bevacizumab, although I don't know that there was that much that had been seen problems with that, but maybe a couple of people who had bleeds and it wasn't clear what was going on. But now there was some data presented last ASCO meeting and people are talking about, well, if the patient's already been treated for the brain mets, then maybe it'd be okay to use the bevacizumab. Is that kind of what you were thinking with this man? Yeah, I mean, we participated in two trials looking at that, the Passport trial and the Atlas trial. Both Atlas started allowing that toward the end of their enrollment. And we had quite a bit of patients on both trials that did very well. We had no issues. So I think we now feel comfortable doing that. Of course, bevacizumab is used in primary brain tumors and glioblastoma at this point. All right. What's this man's life situation, family, work? So interestingly, he's some sort of business entrepreneur, and he has two clients, he told me, that are abroad. One is in the Dominican Republic. The other is in Canada. I'm not sure to the exact nature of his business, but I know that he has to travel there fairly frequently. And he asked me about travel. He's very active, very healthy, very active gentleman. He wants to know everything. He is divorced, has two children, grown children, usually comes in with a different friend each time. So I haven't been able to quite pinpoint exactly where all of his support is. And I do know, he told me yesterday that he's moved in with one of his friends who lives close to Philadelphia so that he can be closer to his treatment because he lives in North Jersey, which is a bit of a hike for him. What came up in discussions, if anything, about long-term outcome with him? He knows his prognosis. For a patient who presents with stage 4 disease, one thing that we feel compelled that we have to tell them is that it's not curable. So he knows that this disease is not curable. For him, I don't know if we gave him exact numbers. He probably pushed us on it because he is a numbers kind of person. He wants to know things. So we probably discussed with him somewhere around a year just because he's a bevacizumab-eligible patient. Now, that was before we knew his mutation status, which I would tend to say would add to his lifespan, would be a better prognostic indicator and a better indicator of him responding to EGFR therapy. So and that's really been something that I guess started this whole thing out. I remember back, I think it was in 2004, Tom Lynch, and he was actually on this program recently, was among the groups, two, three groups who discovered this mutation. I think the way it all started was they had seen like a number of patients, 10, 12 patients with these tremendous responses where they go on for two, three years. And that's how they found out about them. 
we're looking forward to him having a great response. The question for us right now is when to add it in. Let's talk a little bit about some of the supportive care and patient education issues in the advanced disease setting. And again, I'm particularly interested to see what you say to patients and how you manage different types of complications. There are a lot of dermatologic problems that are seen, and you've been involved with some groups and papers and stuff looking at this. Can you talk about the different kinds of dermatologic problems you encounter with the different drugs and sort of how you go about dealing with them? So primarily in lung cancer, we're using erlotinib and then just a little bit of experience with cetuximab. So with erlotinib, again, the rash really varies from person to person. We warn everyone about it up front, of course making sure they know to take it on an empty stomach, and for sure, making sure that they know it's not an allergic reaction. People that don't expect it, a lot of times are going to think it's an allergic reaction. The way that I run our clinic as a nurse practitioner, I follow up with every person at two weeks. So everyone who has been started on Erlotinib comes back to see me in two weeks so that I know what type of rash they're having, any other toxicities, and jump on it rather quickly. We do talk about moisturizing up front and wearing a sunscreen or protective clothing if they're going to be exposed to direct sunlight. I don't necessarily harp on the SPF 15 or greater for people just sort of living their everyday life and not having extended periods of time outside, depending on their occupation really comes into play here. What do you tell people to expect in terms of the type of rash and where it occurs? I tell them it's primarily on the face, sometimes on the chest and the back. And it does tend to look like acne, even though it doesn't necessarily respond to typical acne treatments, but that it does tend to look like acne. It's dry, it's red, can be painful depending on the level of severity that they develop. So when you have them moisturize, is it mainly on the face? Mainly. I don't necessarily think that they need to moisturize their entire body unless they're... Sometimes when patients are on Erlotinib for six, eight, ten months, they develop sort of a paritis all over their body where they need sort of moisturization over their whole body. Usually this rash typically initially develops on the face and chest, so I mostly have them moisturize that area. What specific management approaches do you use once it happens? So once the rash is developed, it all depends on how you're going to grade it. Most patients are going to come in with a grade one or a mild rash. And for that, it all depends on the person and how it's affecting their activities of daily living. So for instance, if a gentleman comes in and has some erythema, dryness, they might just want to moisturize and that's it. If they actually have some acne postules that have developed and it's bothering them, I'll give them something topical like a clindamycin gel, usually it's the thing I would reach for, which is usually drying. So that'll dry up the postules. So then you'll need to add a moisturizer. Usually I'll tell them an hour or two after they apply the topical clindamycin gel. Any kind of moisturizer? Really anything that is a cream. We like creams better than lotions. Anything that has no fragrances or color. They don't have to go out and buy the most expensive stuff. Things like Eucerin, Sarna Ultra, those types of things are fine. Aveeno. What other kind of management approaches do you use? So if the patient is having more difficulty with it, if maybe the intensity of the pustules or the eruption on the face is worse, it's causing them some more pain and emotional distress, disfigurement, I would give them an oral antibiotic such as doxycycline or minocycline. I think both are pretty equal. It's 100 milligrams twice a day. And that does really tend to help them. I would still institute the other steps also, the moisturization and the topical, but then adding in 
antibiotics. The one thing, though, that you have to remind patients is they're very photosensitizing, these antibiotics, more so than other antibiotics. So if they are going to be exposed to any type of sunlight, they're going to have to, if they weren't using sunscreen before, now they will have to if they're on those antibiotics. Any other management strategies? So then I would say if it's severe, and it's hard to do this without photographs, but for patients who come in with a severe rash, they are really in pain. They can't wear their glasses. They're not shaved. They sometimes are having like dry skin that's flaking and crusting. It's painful. Sometimes it has merged into their scalp often. So those patients, a lot of times, just to calm down the inflammation, I'll give them a medrol dose pack or some sort of steroid prep along with the other treatments in order to just get it under control. Most times if they're that uncomfortable, I will also hold the drug for maybe five to seven days, again, just to let everything calm down. At that point, consider restarting them probably at a lower dose. How often do you see that degree of severity? I'd say less than 10% of patients. How many patients do you have who've gone out, particularly these mutation situations, two, three, four years on erlotinib? I don't know that I can say we have anybody that's four years out. We've had certainly probably 10 to 20 patients who've been over two years and maybe just a small handful that have gone to three years. I guess also it's been said that people who have more rash are more likely to benefit. Is yeah. that your take on it? Yeah. I mean, I've certainly seen that in practice. Although I've also heard that the patients with the mutations actually maybe don't even need that high a dose, although I guess we still give it to them. So what happens, I mean, generally, even with these difficult cases, if you use this very proactive approach, you know, how long does it take to get things under control? For most patients, are they then comfortable or you have some people who just have chronic pain? No, usually I'm able to get them under control in a fairly quick amount of time. I can think of one patient off the top of my head who I don't have mutation status on because she did not have sufficient tissue to test. So I just don't know. She is a female who's never smoked. We gave her the 150 and she really had a dramatic response in her disease, but also just the rash was absolutely unbearable for her, despite all the treatments that I just talked about. So we did lower her dose. She ended up being on 50 milligrams for about eight to 10 months, I would say, and was still responding at that dose, stable disease. Now, recently has had some disease progression, so back up to the 100 milligrams. I can definitely tell when she's coming back. It's so interesting because she's someone who sort of has this leathery red paritis from having the rash for almost a year now. By increasing it, she's definitely had the pustules come back again. So trying to aggressively manage that. So I don't have a scan yet to know how she's doing at this point with the 100, but something that we're maybe hoping she'll start responding to again. But the 150 was just too much for her. Any impressions about the dermatologic issues with cetuximab? I guess you haven't had that many patients and people who have experience with colon cancer, particularly probably have seen a lot of people. But what have you observed about the rash there? It seems that the rash comes on faster with it, I would say. I used to think that it, because what people would tell me who treat it in other diseases, that it would wax and wane. I haven't seen that so much in my patients who've come in. They get it very quickly after the first treatment, and it pretty much stays with them. It can be difficult to treat. I had a few patients I can think of. Two in particular were completely different spectrums of patients. One was a Filipino woman who'd never smoked, and the other gentleman was a very young gentleman, 31 years old, who was a smoker. Both of them had cetuximab, and I would have classified his rash as severe looking at him, and he did not care. He didn't care. I gave him the scripts for the doxycycline, the minocycline, the topicals. He didn't really care. So it looked awfully painful for me, to Mm -hmm. me, but he didn't really care to treat it. 
Interesting. What about bevacizumab? What are some of the issues there in terms of supportive care, side effects, complications? I think with bevacizumab, it's more of like a silent, almost things that you have to look out for. I mean, people come in with a cetuximab rash and it's like, boom, it's right in your face. You know what's going on. Bevacizumab is something you have to dig a little. You have to talk to patients. They might not necessarily tell you that they coughed up a little bit of blood the other day because maybe it only happened once and they didn't think much of it. So you have to actually ask them on each time that they're there, have you had any coughing up of blood? Have you had any bleeding any other places? Looking at their blood pressure. I mean, so many times we see patients and we're so involved in writing their chemo orders or asking how their breathing is that we just gloss over the vital signs. But that's something that you have to actually look at and say, is this creeping up and compare it to their last one? And is there a trend where it's going up? How you know, high does it have to be for you to start thinking about doing something? Well, it all depends if it's one reading that's high or if you've seen it creeping up. I mean, if I have a patient who is going up to, let's say, over 140, over 90, I'll say to them, I'll take a look at their meds. So are you on anything? If they're already on something and it's easy to just double the dose, I would be pretty relaxed at doing it. If they're not on anything and it was the first time, it was 140 over 90, I'd still treat them, bring them back. I would say if it's above 150 over 100, I would not treat them that day or maybe give them something, get it down before I would treat them and then make sure that they were on something consistently. I guess it is an antibody and think about like trastuzumab, rituximab, usually the quality of life for those patients, I guess, in terms of how they feel is pretty good. Yeah, usually they feel pretty good. Is that what you've seen? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's not, when they're on a single agent, in the maintenance phase. Right, right. So, Any other issues? What about epistaxis? Have you seen that? So, yeah, and we see quite a bit of that, especially just, I mean, now we're coming out of the winter months, but over the winter, especially the dryness, it's so often, though, where it's just I blew my nose and a little bit of blood came out and that's it. I would even say that it's a fair number. Almost probably half of people have some form of blood when they blow their nose. The way I say it to patients is, did you have blood when you blew your nose or were you just sitting there watching television and it started dripping out? There's a difference there. And if it's just dripping out and you're having a hard time getting it to stop, that is something that I would want to take a little more seriously. We did have one patient with a nasal septum perforation. Now she has, when she was blowing her nose, it was all blood. And it started to become very painful and some swelling. So we looked into it more, and she did have a perforation. As we were talking about before, one of the tricky things about bevacizumab is this issue of hemoptysis and bleeding, specifically in lung cancer. What do you say to patients about the risk of that and the risk of dying from it? So whenever you're going to consent someone to receive this drug, you have to tell them there's a risk of fatal pulmonary hemorrhage. It is around 1% for patients who are non-squamous histology. So even if you're eligible for it, you still have that risk. Now, there's obviously, I tell them there's also a risk even without bevacizumab that you're going to have fatal hemoptysis just from having lung cancer. But that being said, even in the clinical trials, there was still a statistically significant benefit to get the drug. So even though there's this risk of fatal pulmonary hemorrhage, overall, there is a better chance that you're going to do better by getting the drug. Better chance you're going to be alive, I guess. Right, right. It's not like a huge difference, but at least it's there. Right. So it is something that they have to be aware of. And I think a lot of the part, too, when you consent them and you talk about that, is just to sort of not give them a scare tactic, but say, this is really important. It's not something you hide from me. I'm not going to be mad at you if you have coughing up of blood, but you have to tell me about it. Is it cause some people to not want to be treated? Yes. Yes. Not huge numbers, but absolutely. Yeah, it is a frightening thing to consider. What about proteinuria? 
So we have seen some proteinuria in patients, but I can tell you it's pretty rare from my experience. We do a urine dipstick in the office, and if there's a question that there's protein in the urine, then we'll do the urine-to-protein creatinine ratio. We don't do it every single time they're there. We scan patients when they're on maintenance about every three or four cycles, so we'll probably do it about once a scan when they're on the maintenance phase. But we don't do it every single time that they're there. Any other supportive care issues that you want to comment on in metastatic disease? If you stop and think, you know, let's say you have a student nurse or somebody's just coming into oncology, nursing, you kind of think about what would you want to go through with them? Anything we haven't talked about? I just think from just a lung cancer perspective in general, it's really important that when you're treating someone, especially when you're getting, now we're doing so much maintenance therapy and it's like they're on treatment all the time. When their performance status is starting to decline, it's really important to look at the patient and decide, okay, Are we still benefiting them? This is incurable. And even though I've become more optimistic than ever probably about that because of our treatments being better, it's something that you can't get lost in the shuffle with. And that once they're on third, fourth line, I mean, now we have so many drugs that we can treat them with. We are getting to third and fourth and sometimes fifth line chemotherapy with patients. But there has to be a cutoff at some point and you start to notice their decline. Again, if you're seeing them often, sometimes it's not so specific. But you have to be really aware of their declining performance status. What do you see in terms of their emotional coping? A lot of guilt, and they try to hide it from their family members, I think, a lot of times. I have a gentleman that comes in with his daughter, and his daughter is really pushing for him to just keep going on with treatment. And honestly, I nor him can decide whether it's the treatment or the disease that's making him feel worse. I really don't know, because we gave him a treatment break, and I don't think he really felt any better from it. So we're at a really hard time right now about what we want to do with this patient. His daughter really wants him to continue treatment. He does not really want to. I think he feels, he knows he smoked, and he feels for some reason that, I think he definitely has that guilt there that I smoked and I don't feel well and I'm just done with this, where his daughter really wants him around and she's having a hard time with that. I always thought that that would be a major issue too, but yet when I've asked people, you're one of the few people who actually brings us up about the issue of guilt. And I'm not sure it really gets discussed much in the clinical situations. You know, it's really hard because I don't bring it up at all. There's no way that as I'm treating a patient, I'm going to make them feel any kind of guilt. I steer completely clear of that. But it's so glaring in the room sometimes. You can tell patients are feeling in. You can tell their family members sometimes are thinking it or feeling it too. You think there's a lot of anger from the family members towards the patient? Sometimes. I'll tell you one of the most glaring things, and I can think of the woman. I can see her face. Her husband smoked. She was a never smoker with lung cancer, and her husband smoked his entire life. Hmm. And I think he feels terrible about it. And she would never say a thing to him about it. I mean, they're very in love, and she would never say a word to him about it. But anytime something even tiny goes wrong with her treatment, like if she gets sick or something, he's very much on top of things and like, well, what can you do for this? You have to do something for her or something like that. And, you know, neither of them have ever expressed a word of it to me that like she thinks it's his fault or he thinks it's his fault that she got lung cancer since he smoked his entire life and she never did. And he still smokes and he's having such a hard time. He really wants to quit, but he's having such a hard time with it. And he doesn't smoke in the house anymore. But it's a struggle with them. But I don't bring it up because I feel like I don't want to make the situation any worse. And I'm not there to judge. I'm there to treat and help you get through this. Well, the fact that you're aware of it probably helps a lot. Whether you talk about it or not, you're more tuned in to what's really going on. 
it must be a common thing. I, I don't know. To some extent, I think it's a little bit kind of bogus. I mean, everybody, you know, people get heart attacks and they overeat. And I mean, nobody lives a perfect life. And I don't know. And non-smokers get lung cancer, too, for that matter. Right. Who have had no exposure at all. No secondhand exposure. So anything that we haven't talked about today that you know, we've talked about a lot of really good stuff that maybe you want to comment on. Again, kind of thinking about a nurse in general practice, any other things that you talk about, say, when you give lectures and stuff that we haven't covered. And we covered pretty much everything I thought about. I guess the only other thing that I would discuss is from a nurse practitioner standpoint. I am a nurse practitioner, so... And statewide, that can vary on what your privileges are. So in Pennsylvania, I have prescribing authority. I can bill for patients and have somewhat worked out a niche in my area where I see sort of my own clinic in addition to the physician that I work with where the chemotherapy patients coming back. In lung cancer, there's so many symptom management walk-ins, side effects from treatment, and I'll see all those patients, and it really – it's sort of an empowering position to be able to get respect, not only from the physicians in the practice, but the patients, that I'm able to treat them, manage them, and get them out the door and free up the physician to do the more difficult things, like the scan reviews and the treatment decisions. That's not certainly all of our practice, but probably is a good 20 to maybe 30% of the practice I'm able to do that. And it seems to work very efficiently for us. 